Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! I'm your host, Bobby the Brain here. <laughs> With that, welcome you to the I Am Vinyl podcast. My name is Pete Larusa, and joining me once again is Joey from the Rock Strikes 10 podcast. We are doing episode 32, which is the Vinylversary edition, volume 5. We're picking up where we left off towards the end of 2020. We're going back to some albums that reached milestone anniversaries of 45 years, 30 years, 40 years in 2020. So some albums dating back from September through uh, early February of this month. So with that said, let's get into the first record. So I'm gonna go into the grab bag here. All right, hard and heavy. Hard and heavy grab bag as dubbed in the last episode. And we got one of my favorites from Pink Floyd. Wish you were here. And the uh, the non hypnosis cover, or do, does it have the hypnosis cover inside? Oh, it does. Yeah, because this is it's like a duplication of the original with the with the bag. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Got the the front and back inside this black bag, and then yeah, it has the the classic white cover. Okay. So uh, this is actually the 2011 180 gram reissue. So Wish You Were Here was released 45 years ago. On September 12th, 1975. This reissue here that I have was reissued on November 4th, 2011. And the peak chart position, it was number one on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart and the UK Albums chart. And the sales and certification, multi-platinum, over 6 million copies sold, 20 million plus copies sold worldwide. So I'll go to you first, Joey. Uh, I know you're, you've, you've said you're not the biggest Pink Floyd fan, but you know, I know you're, you've listened to a lot of classic rock radio in your time. So you know, there's a few tracks on this album that have been played on the radio, you know, maybe once or twice. So I know you've heard stuff on this record. So I want to hear what you think. I've heard the record a couple of times all the way through, especially someone who's worked in stores in his lifetime, a good, a good amount. Uh, of course, super familiar with the title track. Uh, got a little boost for me uh, back in the 90s when I remember Billy Corgan jamming on uh, that at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony when they when Pink Floyd got inducted with some of the Pink Floyd guys. So that was really neat. And I know Shine On You Crazy Diamond pretty well. Yeah. And I, I, I own it via Les Claypool's version. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Frog Brigade. Yeah, yeah all, all that um, stuff they do, those covers are incredible. Yeah, and while not having the track list in front of me, like what what else would I have heard like ad nauseum on the radio, or is it just those two songs really? Have a cigar was. Oh goodness. Have a cigar looks like was the only official single released, which is hard to believe. Wish you were here. As much as the title track has been played on classic rock radio, sure doesn't seem like it had an official single release. But have a cigar. Well, so wish you were here is their stairway to heaven by that rationale. Oh yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that, go. that's a good, good analogy. Yeah. In talking about Wish You Were Here, you know, even as a kid when I was younger, I think a lot of fans thought that that song was sung by drummer Nick Mason, but then, you know, I found out later on as I got older that Have a Cigar was actually sung by Roy Harper. And wow, okay. Roger hey, Waters. that's a nice little Zeppelin tie in there. <laughs> yeah, and, and this, and I think they're out there. They might be out there. I don't know if they're out there on YouTube or if, you know, you could find them somewhere. But uh, I think there might be attempts out there 
where Roger Waters and David Gilmour attempted to do the vocals on the song. Huh. In fact, it yeah, might- that, That's an interesting time of reference, like where, you know, I like that kind of a story because like there doesn't seem to be a lot of ego in like, well, everybody gets a crack at the song and whichever version we like better, you know, whoever gets it, gets it. Or maybe they left it up to the producer, maybe producer and engineers. Uh, Beach Boys did that too. Like, who gets the lead? You know, sometimes they would kind of have a sing-off or something like that. So at one point, there was a song that nobody was getting that the Beach Boys did, and their manager got the vocal on the record. So, I mean, they, yeah, that's way out there. But yeah, I, I did know that. I didn't know that was Roy Harper singing. I that's uh, I learned something today. So very cool. Yeah, it's just that's one of those things that I wanted to bring up because I know that I'm not alone in you know in thinking that at some point that that was, that was Nick Mason on the vocal. So as I understand it, Roy Harper was recording in the same studio. They were in Abbey Road recording that record. So he was recording in, in the, you know, in one of the other studios and I guess he was in, he was around on the sessions and then they, they asked him to take a crack at it. You know, they heard it and they said, that's it. That's the one. So yeah, I think that, that I think that is a really cool factoid about this yeah. record and, and that song. It's also, it also makes me think of like as cool as the home studio thing is that like those kind of moments are probably going to be very few and far between as time goes on. Uh, since like the big studios have kind of are, are kind of and are kind of just dying off. Yeah. Uh, and that's sad because, you know, you hear about those chance meetings that lead to whether it's a tour or a duet or something like this. Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a shame. Now it's going to be just so like, okay, my manager or, you know, this, this company put this duet together, you know, it's, just, it's, it's not going to be the same. You got to meet them in the hallway, you know, or in the pool, like pool hall. Each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's so boring yeah. now. Yeah, I just, it's just one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I mean, I know there was like people called in for sessions, you know, like that were names. Uh, back in the day too but like those kind of things like they're just it's sad that they may not ever happen again in that way but you know who knows maybe maybe we'll get back to something maybe they've just they'll push it so far that we'll just you know kind of like vinyl everything gets pushed ahead so far that like there's going to be a pushback mm -hmm. so maybe maybe there will be a call for big studios again down the road that would be nice okay well i think that's that's a good conclusion to our discussion on pink floyd's wish you were here so i'm going to go into the grab bag and get the next record. So next up, we get a little bit heavier than Pink Floyd here. So 30 years ago, still speaking in 2020 terms, 30 years ago. Right, 30 years and change. Yeah. You know. On November 6th, 1990, Creator released their second album on Epic and Noise Records, not their second record overall, but their, their second record as part of this distribution Major deal label, Epic, yeah. Epic Records. So this pressing, I'll just show this really quick. I don't know if the light here will do it justice, but this is the original press. I think you can kind of see. Yeah, yeah. Print, right? So. Yeah, you call you call that the MJ label. Yes, thank you very much. The the Michael Jackson label, as I like to call the Michael Jackson Epic Records label, and uh, so as hype sticker here states this is on a painful purple vinyl not just a purple vinyl joey painful <laughs> well purple it's vinyl. 
it's so purple it's painful I, I think most of us can relate to that if you know whether it's in a good or bad thing you know so and, and I, I also decided to uh, grab the reissue from a few years ago that was reissued by noise records this is a multi 180 gram uh, red vinyl edition as for creators como of souls again i as i stated it was Released 30 years ago, November 6, 1990. Peak chart position, there was none. No sales and certification numbers. So don't really know officially how this album did in the U.S., but I would say that, you know, Creator tends to fall under that, you know, underrated of, of thrash metal bands. You, you tend to see that discussed in, uh, in, in commentary and comments on, on social media. So... What do you think as, yeah. far as, as far as creator is concerned? You know, do you, do you, do you feel that they kind of don't get their, their due that they should, you know, as far as, you know, like bands like the big four and even like outsiders like Testament, Overkill? I was going to say, I, I'm probably going to steal a term from my friends at Cobras and Fire. I think they might be perfectly rated, which is not a shot at mm-hmm. the band. They're kind of on that level where like Overkill are the leaders of this movement. They're like, more underground than all of their peers from that time, you know, like the big four and whatnot. Uh, so like overkill and Testament are like the leaders of that next wave uh, of, you know, past the big four, like five and six are probably overkill and Testament, honestly, especially as far as success and notoriety goes. It's like creator were more like annihilator and bands like that, uh, where they were like a little below that on like, you know, maybe the C tier once again, not trash in the band. I just don't think for and for me personally uh, i i don't really go to this band very often although i did recently listen to coma souls and not even just because of the show because i was doing my uh, 1990 retrospect on rock strikes 10 so i'm familiar with this record uh, especially in recent memory but for me it's definitely the thing i have on most metal bands is that musically it's really good i, I love thrash metal but the vocals are a little bit much for me it's like you can hear at best, his voice kind of goes up and down for me. At best, it's kind of more like a Chuck Billy approach. Mm-hmm. And at worst, it kind of gets down into that, uh, you know, I, I call it witch vocals, you know, like <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, and like I said, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, that's just not my thing, you know, like I said, that's why like I, I love Overkill, but sometimes they go too far there. You know, and Exodus does the same thing too. I should have mentioned them. Uh, you know, depending on the singer, of course. Uh, but yeah, once it gets kind of a little bit overbearing on the witch vocal thing, I, I'm kind of out. But I didn't hate this record. I, I remember I probably gave it like a 75% out of 100 for Como Souls. But I mean, musically, it's great. And 1990 is a killer year for thrash oh, yeah. metal. I mean, oh, yeah. I would I would <laughs> think that this album would at least go on a top five or ten of you know heavy metal albums of 1990. Uh, on most people's list, you know, so I'm not I'm not hating on it once again. I'm not I'm not even trying to be diplomatic. I'm just saying I like the music, but I'm not terribly keen on the vocals. Listen, I can respect that. And I'll, I'll just, you know, I've touched on this before on, on the podcast. You know, my, myself and the, the Verrame brothers, you know, we got into Creator pretty much by chance because I recorded a bunch of videos off of Headbangers Ball not an entire episode. Like I had like this short, like 60 minute tape and I just taped a bunch of videos and fell asleep. And one of the videos happened to be creator as Adam Curry introduced them. Creator. Yeah. 
the, the video for Betrayer from the previous album, 1989's Extreme Aggression. I lent this tape to them, and like you know, maybe a day or, or so later, maybe the same day, and I get a phone call, and they're on the other line. I hear like laughing in the background, and, and I forget which brother was on the phone, but they're like, you got to see this, this fucking video on here, and you got to hear these vocals. We're like, what the fuck is going on here? So I get on my mongoose dirt bike, <laughs> and I go to their house, and they lived only like a few minutes away. So I, I go to their house, you know, and chain my bike up, go in the house. And they, and this they is, this up, is the 80s version of YouTube, by the yeah, way. Is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like lending each other the, 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 the videotapes of what we taped the night before. Yeah. So, I like that you had to drive over to their house <laughs> to, to watch a tape that you made for them. Well, yeah, I mean, it was mine, but, you know, they were... Yeah, two against one right there. (laughs) So, you know, I I go into the house, and again, it's like, they're they're laughing hysterically. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? So they put the video on for me, and naturally, I I just hear this, this is a song about people, this is a script about people, about you! I'm like, what the... So naturally, I start laughing, and you can't deny me, traitor! (laughs) That's naturally, I'm, you know, hysterical laughing with them, but... And then this became just a thing that yeah. we, just, we would watch the video over and over. And then, you know, this would happen later on. I'm not going to discuss which band it is, but it's going to come up this year. And this okay. would happen again. But, you know, we watched this video over and over and over for our amusement. And then slowly, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this, we're starting to like Oh, it. no. Is, is OFR got a vinyl versary coming out? Is that what's going on? <laughs> is it a nitro? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We started, you know, slowly like getting into it, and Andrea would end up going to buy the cassette. We all heard the record, and then I slowly got into it more too. So I remember seeing the the, the CD for Extreme Aggression used in an old local CD store. It was actually the, the little record store, which I'm going to bring up in a little while, actually, for one of these records. I picked up the CD used, and you know. I got into them and, you know, despite the, the weird, you know, vocals and how we took them in at first at the time, because again, you know, we were so used to like Motley Crue and these like polished vocals and even like Metallica and Anthrax to an extent, like things were, you know, somewhat polished compared to Creator (laughs) at that time. So, so as far as Como of Souls, as I think we should lead into some tracks now from these first two records we're discussing, I would definitely go with the single. I don't know if there was even like an official single, but I would go with the, the video, People of the Lie, from Coma of Souls, as far as something to represent the record here. And before we play that, I think we should play the song we discussed as sung by Mr. Roy Harper, Pink Floyd with Have a Cigar. <laughs>
Pink Floyd with Have a Cigar from the 2011 edition of Wish You Were Here on 180 Gram Vinyl, followed by Creator with People of the Lie from the album Coma of Souls. And There's a yin-yang right there for yeah. you. <laughs> Let's get into the next record, which was released 40 years ago on November 8th, 1980. Ah, yeah. Fucking Motorhead. I believe in some of the newer versions, uh, I saw a hype sticker on it that said an outlaw classic. <laughs> That's like, you know, and not that the cover doesn't lend itself to that. They look like they're about to rob a train. Yeah. You know, and and so. where, where was this cover actually shot? Like on some beach, right? Yeah, it looks like it now that I think about it. But I got to say, like, I, I would think that, and this is probably a conservative number, 99% of the people that ever got into Motorhead got into Motorhead because of the song Ace of Spades. So I'm not going to be all snobby about it. I mean, I do own every Motorhead record ever, but to deny Ace of Spades is like to deny Back in Black or, you know, Living After Midnight or something like that. And I'm sticking with 1980 here. But yeah, it's, it's undeniable. And you know, it's hard for me to even get sick of it. I'm sure Lemmy got a little sick of it, even though he said he didn't. Uh, but 
I always liked the fact that they, they never closed with it. <laughs> like they, they'd usually throw it in the middle or like, you know, maybe towards the end of the set, but they'd always play some more songs after that. I think I, my big moment of it was uh, them playing on the young ones, which I guess they were just about done on the run for this album when they played on the young ones. And uh, cause if you see the appearance, you'll actually see Phil Robertson playing on in the band with them. Interesting. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, but yeah, this is just a great smoking album top to bottom. So I would definitely say this is kind of like, uh, I'd almost say this album is kind of like news of the world for uh, hard rock and heavy metal fans. Like, people buy it for the first song on the record and in news of the world's case the first two songs we will rock you and we are the champions but this album is a classic for a reason it's a great album if you love ace of spades how do you not keep listening after that the record doesn't ever fall off it delivers and uh yeah it never gets old for me what else can i say really but yeah this is a must own i was thinking about this over the last few days before we started recording here and I think an album like this would deserve to have two tracks played so having said that like you said you can't ignore Ace of Spades so I'm not going to be snobs and say well everybody's heard Ace of Spades so we're not going to play Ace of Spades but we're going to play Ace of Spades and then we're going to follow it up with a song that pretty much was one of my go-tos when I'd be warming up on guitar at, at the studio with Spacebeard. If Andrea's watching or listening, you know, he'll probably remember. But I, I did it often. I would warm up playing songs like Love Me Like a Reptile and, you know, um, uh, some, other, some other standards that I would, you know, the chords that I knew. But that was one of them that I would, I would play a lot, like while I was like testing my guitar sounds. So I want to play Ace of Spades and Love Me Like a Reptile from the album Ace of Spades. And this reissue here that I'm, that I'm talking about is the 180 gram vinyl reissue that was released sometime in 2015. And just some quick stats. The album peaked at number four on the UK albums chart. Uh, I didn't see any chart positions for the US. I was kind of surprised yeah. there, was, there was nothing, even like with a resurgence yeah. or something. And they they it, barely ever charted in the U.S. Like yeah, ever. I noticed. So, yeah. The sales and certification, again, nothing in the United States, but you know, gold yeah. gold record in the U.K. with over a hundred thousand copies sold, which yeah. those numbers always blow my mind. Like hundred thousand versus like five hundred thousand U.K. U.S. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I definitely would want the uh, merchandise over the uh, song royalty. Sadly. Uh, yeah, because they definitely sold more shirts than records. Uh, that's just a fact of life. It's amazing, it, you know. And we're going to get into it a little bit later, uh, as far as Motorhead is concerned. But it's like the Ramones, you know, bands that should have sold so many more fucking records. You know, like Motorhead. Motorhead is cited as an influence by so many people. It's hard to believe they didn't sell more records. It's just like the Ramones. Yeah. So, yeah. so we've settled on tracks to play from Ace of Spades. Let's move on to the next record. It's a band you and I definitely shared a very mutual interest in and have for a very long time since we were younger. And the album was released 35 years ago on November 9th, 1985. And it's just been reissued by Friday Music on gold and purple vinyl. We're both, yeah, thank you, Joey, for showing the inside of the manhole. Twisted Sisters, Come Out and Play. Yeah. A very infamous album as far as 
tracks on it, how it sold, and just the general reception to the album. And uh, so I'll just make a, a quick note. So I picked up my copy here, my original copy for $2.99 at a store called The Little Record Store. Nice, you got the merch form as well. I, I do have that as well. I, I think I have, I have two of them in here actually, for some reason. <laughs> one right there. So you got the one that I didn't get originally because <laughs> my first copy of it didn't have anything in it and wow. it was defective on top of that. So there you go. So I did uh, my second copy had the merch form in it. Uh, yeah. So like, as I was, I was mentioning, uh, I got this at a store called the little record store. It's no longer open. It was on the same block as record factory. It was like a few stores away actually. So they were getting rid of any vinyl stock they had around 1990 and they were going in favor of all CDs. So I picked up so many titles like this for only $2.99, original Kiss solo albums with the nice. posters for $2.99, some Overkill records, uh, Metal Church, Metallica, Garage Days. So, but this, but this particular record, you know, the cellophane and the hype stickers are still in effect, but I had an X-Acto knife back then as a kid. 14 years old. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's right. The album itself, before we get into our comments and perspective overall. So the album itself, it was obviously a disappointment in comparison. Uh, thank you, Joey, showing the inner sleeve right there. Yeah, the side faces, the, the left and, and right. Compared to the previous album, Stay Hungry, this album didn't sell nearly as well or peak on the billboard top 200 albums chart nearly as well as it only peaked at number 53 and the sales and certification it was gold with over 500,000 copies sold so you know the story's been told plenty of times plenty of podcasts i'm sure i know d snyder's talked about it ad nauseum but what was your perspective as a twisted sister fan when the record came out and I mean, and then yeah. this also came out, and the videos oh. were all over MTV, oh, except for "Be Cruel to Your School," but we'll get to that. So anyway, yeah. Well, I didn't have an MTV journey with this, although I I did know the videos from the "Stay Hungry" thing pretty well because I would see them when I went to my grandparents' house. But obviously, the rotation was super down on anything from Kind of Mountain Play. Obviously, I know that it was just the one video that would have had the shot, but I never saw it initially. Uh, it was years later until I saw the uh, leader of the pack video, but I was six years old. That's the thing. And I loved stay hungry. It was one of my first full links I ever owned. So when this one came out, I was ready for it. And I didn't, I didn't feel any sense of a drop off in quality. It was just one of those things where I was young. My favorite band had a new record out and it was magical, like automatically. So I still love this album for a lot of different reasons. I recognize now in retrospect, and not just because you know a journalist or a fan told me otherwise, but yeah, obviously I can tell that it's not as good as Stay Hungry or even the first, it's not even as good as the first three albums, let's be honest, but it's fun. I like it. And you know, that's sometimes that's all you need. So that's really my whole thing on it. I, uh, I also still can't believe even though we were left with uh, what, like the MTV special for Stay Hungry, so mm -hmm. that's 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 pro shot, fine. Uh, but the fact that we don't have a good pro shot of the tour and the the tour has almost taken on this kind of weirdly odd legendary status just because it's you know so obscure 
because like, it was it's so, asylum tour. Yeah, yeah, it's like it was so, too. Yeah, the attendance was so down. They were playing like big theaters, I guess. They were back to they went from like arenas to like theaters again, and so like there's there's like some still shots, and every time I see like it pop up on the official Twisted Sister Facebook page. I'm like, ooh, you got stay hungry photo, or you got come out and play photos. This is really cool. And the stage looks so fun and cool, but there's no, like, there's zero footage from it. It's so sad, like, but yeah, so it's kind of taken on this kind of mysterious thing. And same thing with Love Is For Suckers, because, you know, both, I, I do you know anybody that saw either of those shows? I don't. Oh, not at all. There's also that. So as a six-year-old, I didn't care. I, I wasn't going to shows yet, so I kind of didn't care. And they definitely didn't come to my town, so it wasn't even an issue. But I love this album, and I still do. More so the fact, although, um, and yeah, I even uh, years ago, I found uh, I found a 12-inch. Right. I, I almost want to say it's probably a canceled single, because do you even know of, like, radio? Do you even know of like radio even playing? You want what we got? I don't. I looked. I, I think I looked this stuff up when I was when I was looking up just at random about this album, and I, I think that was a single that was intended for you know like an actual video, possibly and a push. But because the first two singles bombed, they they just you know they aborted everything as far as promotion for this record. Yeah. So yeah, that one that one basically fell by the wayside. Yeah. Like you, I would only see these videos at my grandparents' house. So I remember it this way. Sometime after Leader of the Pack was released, we went to my grandparents' house. My brother and I were watching MTV, and the video came on. And so, you know, I was, uh, what, I was like nine years old at that point, probably. So I remember being really excited. It's, it's Twisted Sister. And I, I, you know, the beginning of the video didn't have music yet, right? It was. I say, did it, did it have the full intro? In the initial early airings, I think they were showing the, the full video with all the, the Bobcat Goldthwait stuff in the beginning. So, you know, I was excited because it was a Twisted Sister video, and I was such a fan of Stay Hungry, and I, you know, I had the record by that point already. And then the song comes on, and I'm like, and I turned to my brother. I must have said something like, you know, why are they doing this like oldie that you know mom and dad listened to? <laughs> You know, not having any clue that Twisted Sister had done the song on the Rough Cuts EP or that it had been, you know, like a standard in their club years. So I had no clue about that. So for a lot of years, I I thought, you know, you know, oh, they they trying to sell out even more or they 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 so desperate to get on radio that they would, you know, cover this song. You know, I just had no idea until I got older. So that was my initial, you know, perspective as far as when I first saw the video as a nine-year-old, but when I did get this record later on and I actually heard the album, you know, knowing very, very little about how well it did, you know, cause again, I wasn't that, I was like, you know, 13, 14 years old when I picked this up. So I knew very little. Yeah. I just we don't really that, care about that stuff at that age. I think it's like, right. you know, what, what but, you start reading and like reading magazines and reading next level type stuff that you really care about that, or you're, you're convinced that you care about it. Right. But I also, you know, I also knew because I would see this album in the discount bins at like, you know, Genevieve's drug stores and, you know, like random places that would have like a little bargain bin of, of records. Yeah. So yeah, with the clip, with the clip. Yeah, on. yeah. And, and this yeah. one has a, a, a clip somewhere, I, I believe. Yeah, right here. It's actually right Ah, here. yeah, there you go. So having said that, 
my perspective as like a 13, 14 year old was this was an album that was always in the bargain bin. So it didn't do as well. It just didn't do as well as, as stay hungry. Yeah. Now then, you know, as I got older and was listening to it more, I started to agree with a lot of things that I was seeing and hearing as far as, you know, the album is a little underappreciated. Now, am I going to say it's a great album? No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a great album, but I think it's fair to say that it's, it's a good album. It's, it's, you know, it's got some quality material on it, you know, kill or be killed. Yeah, that's fun. That could have been on uh killer be killed could have been on the second album or the, the first two, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Stay hungry. I, I believe that that, that could have yeah. been, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, fire still burns. You know, these yeah. are, these are really great songs. Yeah, the, the, even the, the title track, and we, you know, we should mention, you know, the whole nod to the Warriors at the beginning of the record and through uh, Come yeah. Out and Play. Yep. So I, I think there's, there's some quality stuff on here and it's probably gets some abuse that it really doesn't deserve, you know, because of Leader of the Pack and, you know, the, the decisions that they had made at this time. Lastly, just on a, you know, on a kind of on a humorous note, I just want to say that I find it amusing as I was, you know, revisiting these albums before we had this discussion, you know, Stay Hungry had Tom Werman producing and all the background vocals are really nice and everything sounds great and everything is very, you know, a lot of melodies and, you know, you get this record and they didn't, they didn't work with Tom Werman on this record. So, you know, in, instead, you Deeter. have stuff. Yeah, yeah, Dieter. How do you how do you pronounce it? Dieter. Dieter Dierks, I guess. Yeah. Scorpions with Klaus Mein. Scorpions. So instead, you know, instead of instead of getting these really a lot of like melodic background vocals, as heard on many Tom Werman records, you get stuff like "I Believe in Rock and Roll," where you could literally hear and see in your mind Mark the Animal Mendoza in the vocal booth with the guys like every day. Yeah, totally. And I like Every that, actually. Every day! Every day! And number one! Dude, the and, and I totally, you could totally tell that that's Mark, too, on all those songs. And I kind of dig that. That's yeah. kind of one of my favorite parts about that record. And when I was a kid, looking out for number one was my favorite song on that record. Just because, I don't know, it just was like, yeah. And I love the way that Mark said that on the record. Yeah, which, is, which is really like, I'm trying to say that it, it's a very New York Street album, you know, as compared yeah. to the Sheen, you know, nice melodic vocals. Everything's perfect on a Tom Werman record. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I love Story. No. I but, love but Tom the weird, Werman production. I just found that position as a fan. Yeah, but the juxtaposition is that I, on I Believe in You, there's another Scorpions callback here, is that using Don Dockin on there, oh, uh, right, which right. is just sticks out like a sore thumb, even though it's kind of cool to hear that cameo. But that's strictly Dieter, I bet, because it's it's well known now that you know, for Blackout, Klaus couldn't really do the demos or whatever, and they brought in Don to do all the guide vocals. So... No he shit. had a lot of hand. He had a big hand in the pre-production, as far as like maybe making a few decisions here and there about how it would get sung. So if you think about some of those big songs in there, you could totally hear like I could hear Don singing that, especially at that time when his voice was just like badass. Yeah. So uh, I'm pretty sure that's why he's on there. It's because of Dieter. Like he's like, yeah, let's use him. You know. But it's weird that he didn't. If he didn't do since uh, he you can actually hear him on certain parts of blackout he's not as high in the mix as he is like say for instance on I believe in you 
But yeah, I'm surprised he didn't use them more on the record. You can hear them on like one or two other songs on this. But yeah, I kind of prefer the uh, the East Coast sounding gang vocal thing that they did. Yeah, I mean, but, just uh, as someone who you know came from playing in like hardcore punk bands and doing like, a lot of gang yeah. vocals, it was just one of those things. Like I'm listening to it last night, and I don't know why it, it never really dawned on me like how kind of humorous it, it, it sounds, you know, to, to yeah. me now. But I just, I, I just, yeah. I just found it funny last night while listening to it, so yeah. I just wanted to bring that up. But uh, yeah. lastly, I think we should bring up that you know you mentioned the cameos on this album. There, there are some interesting ones. Oh, like on oh, well, yeah, I kind of buried the lead on it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, just before we go to the next record, the video that MTV refused to play, would they did they find it detrimental to uh, mental patients like uh, Anthrax's Madhouse? I, I guess, or they, they apparently didn't like the Tom Savini effects. Like, they didn't like the gore and stuff and the zombie effects, uh, which is stupid to think about, especially, like, it's... And they it's thriller, smacks of, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, it smacks of favoritism when you can have a guy with blood flowing out of his mouth and something that's, like, legit scary Yeah. We versus this thing that's super cartoony and, you know, obviously is not meant to be taken seriously in any kind of way. This is really just... Honestly, I, I do scream conspiracy theory on this one that this was a way to get Twisted Sister off the air. They were overexposed. They were yesterday's news in their opinion at this point. And by not having them on here, like they don't, they, they don't run the risk of maybe like, hey, they don't wind up on our top 10 from fan votes and all that kind of stuff. So I think they put the fix in to keep them off their channel, honestly. Like, and that sucks because as much as D did for him, yeah, uh, you know, even coming on and, and co-hosting and everything. And so that band did a lot for that channel. And sure. the fact that they turned their backs on them that hard, they spun on them that hard within a year or less than a year, actually, is just disgusting to me. So that's, that's my big rant on that. Let's close this conversation and head into some songs. We have the two Motorhead tracks, Ace of Spades, right into Love Me Like a Reptile. And what do you want to play from Come Out and Play? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my little quick anecdote uh, that I, I haven't told yet about this album, is that when I saw Dee Snider actually do a solo show, it was basically an SMF show uh, at the, the now late Canyon Club in Dallas, a great venue connected to the Bronco Bowl. I got to meet Dee before the show, got a picture, he signed my I Want to Rock 45 picture sleeve, and he was super nice to me. He was in town, uh, I think, pitching Strangeland to some places out here, like some companies or whatever. So he booked a show on the fly. No one knew about this show. So nobody was there. And not, not that he would have drawn huge at this point, because like I said, we're talking like 98, something like that. Uh, but it was such a last minute booking. I found out about it through someone who knew about it uh, that worked in a store. And uh, I went to the show and there was maybe 50 people in that club. So I was right up front and it was so great. He actually even came uh, out opening to come out and play. Hmm. Uh, he had black hair, not blonde hair. Uh, and AJ was on the drums. Oh, so cool. even, the, even though it was a solo show, he had AJ in tow. So it was a great night. And obviously, you know, with 50 people in there, he looked at everybody in the room. I'm in the front row. I'm singing every damn word. And during this particular song, I got the mic shoved in my face 
quite a few times. So me and Dee had our own little sort of quasi-pseudo-duet moment here on this song. So I'm always going to love this song for that reason. And it's kind of a deep one here. Not the best song on the album, but I do love it just on that principle. So I'd like to go with I Believe in Rock and Roll. Okay. All right, so we will do that. Let's play Mouth Ahead with Ace of Spades right into Love Me Like a Reptile from the album Ace of Spades. And we'll go right into Twisted Sister, I Believe in Rock and Roll from Come Out and Play.
from sometime in 2015 with title track Ace of Spades, followed by Love Me Like a Reptile, which was immediately followed by I Believe in Rock and Roll from Twisted Sister and from my original pressing of Come Out and Play. Yeah. And last thing about Ace of Spades, if anybody out there that's watching or listening, if you've purchased any of these newer Ace of Spades collections, like there's the deluxe one that's like a two or three vinyl set or the big ass box set with all the goodies in it and the extra material. If you've purchased those, let us know how it is. Cause I really want to get it, but like, I kind of need that kind of push over the edge with that one. I may just go hard. I I love me some box sets, obviously. Yeah. Same here. Uh, But, but they are an investment. Uh, But yeah, if anybody out there comment or send us a message and let us know if you had the box set, what you think of it, or even, like I said, even that deluxe edition. So great. We definitely welcome anyone's feedback on just anything where we're talking about. If you want to share your stories, anything having to do with the records we're talking about, your vinyl versary story, if anything. So let's move on to the next record. And uh, this has a few little interesting components to it. And I don't think a lot of people are going to discuss this album very much. Oh, you got two of them, huh? Yeah, I will get into that shortly and so the first one here is the original u.s copy from grand slam records which was released sometime in 1986 now originally this album was released in japan at first on november 9th 1985 and this is a white vinyl pressing that came out towards the end of 2019 i actually played the title track from this on one of the early episodes of the podcast so you can can check that out Uh, so this is actually a, a very good reissue press. I would I would definitely suggest for anybody looking for a copy. And and we're talking about White Lions' uh, first record. Yes, White Lions' debut, Fight to Survive, which again, like I was saying, it has some interesting components, like the fact that it was released first in Japan and then in the U.S. Now, what maybe a lot of people don't know about this, and you can see on the back of the record what I'm going to get into here. It says manufactured and distributed by Grand Slam, licensed by Electra Asylum Records. So for those that don't know, White Lion was initially signed to Electra Records, and this was recorded, intended for Electra Records. And for whatever reason, they passed on the record <laughs> and gave it back to the band, which, you know, in 1985 standards is sort of hard to believe for a band that was, you know, not nothing here. They, they got this yeah. record back. So yeah. it ended up being released in Japan first, licensed uh, to a, a label in Japan before being licensed here around a year later or so on Grand Slam Records. And the weird thing about my copy here, is show you the inner sleeve, there's the back with the logo. The tracks don't match, oops, upside down. <laughs> the tracks don't match what's actually on the center ring labels. So yeah. it, it is a misprint. So wow. whenever I listen to it, I'm often still confused as, as to what songs I'm going to get. So the white vinyl edition... I put like a little part. post-it note on the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the white vinyl edition fixed that problem. Okay. And uh, so have, you know, subsequent CD reissues by Rock Candy and such. So, gotcha. you know, so we're, not, we're, not, we're not trading here is what you're telling me, basically. No, no, I'm definitely keeping both. What do you think as far as Electro Records, you know, rejecting this record? If you've heard it and... You know, what are your thoughts about that? Because, you know, I have, you know, a thought of, I can understand in some way why they, they dropped 
them from the label. But at the same time, why did you pick them up in the first place? You know, if you heard the demos that got them the deal, if you saw them before, if your A&R had seen them play, what was it that when you got the record, you just said, nah, and, you know, Atlantic Records ended up snagging them up. And, you know, they had pretty damn good success, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they had a good good run. Yeah, they had a a pretty good run. Some people would say they didn't have, like, a a huge run because they had one really big hit record. And then they had, you know, a moderate successful record after that. But, right. but the way the way I was gauging success at that time was how much do I see you on MTV, honestly. Oh, yeah. Like radio was one thing, but MTV was the thing. That was the gauge and, for us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And big game did well as far as I could tell. I saw those Radar videos on, on a million times. Yeah. So, and even fire. Tell Me, Tell Me was big on there. That yeah. was that was big game, right? Yeah. No, Tell Me yeah. was was Pride. Was it Pride? Okay. Yeah. Uh, big game. They only released uh, Little Fighter and I think the, the Radar Little Love Fighter cover. That was the one. I was I confused those two. But yeah, like yeah, Radar Love. You couldn't get rid of Radar Love. Yeah, and then by the time they got to Main Attraction, Headbangers Ball was only playing it, and even then they probably didn't care to play it either. So sad uh, but that's, with, that, with that record because I think that that might be their best album. Yeah, and they re-recorded a song from this album on yeah, Main Attraction, right? Yeah. Okay. Broken thank heart. you. And but here's the thing, going back to the album itself here, I don't understand how a rep doesn't hear this album in 1985 and doesn't hear commercial potential. I mean, this album is drizzling with commercial potential, and you know, I don't know. Maybe they just being stupid record labels. Like, who do we market this to? It's it's poppy, but it's also a little heavy. Mm-hmm. Like, who cares? Like, you had Motley Crue and Metallica on your label. Figure it out. Like. Okay, you can go the Loverboy route. Fine. I mean, I don't care. Like, these guys wrote some pretty damn good songs. Mike Tramp is a pretty damn good pop rock songwriter. Vito Brada is a yeah. He could have he could have been, uh, you know, close to that upper echelon of guitar heroes. He's a damn Absolutely. good player. Fucking and great player. Definitely unappreciated in retrospect for sure. Absolutely. And you know, if <laughs> and it's only because of the Kiss thing, but people like you know. People like uh, celebrate Vinnie Vincent to an extent because he's so enigmatic. But Vito Brada dropped off the fl- face of the planet too. Where's the love for him? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But it was I, like a I, big I, event when he was on Eddie Trunk uh, around yeah. two years ago. It was like a huge event here. Like people, yeah. we all wanted to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, like I thought White Lion were cool, man. I like those four records. And Mike Tramp always comes off. The, the other thing I like about Mike is that he comes off very grounded. And very humble, mm-hmm. even even back then, uh, you know. He, I think I remember when he said when they were touring with Ozzy, he's like, "I don't have expectations, but this is great. Like, this is so cool. Like, pe- some people don't like us, but you know, whatever. You know, we're just gonna go out, play our asses off. We're gonna try to earn respect." They always seem like a band that like really had their feet on the ground. A working unlike class their, band. Yeah, unlike a lot of their contemporaries, uh, you know. So. Yeah, and this is a cool record. It's a lost record. It really is. I like it. And I think people should definitely give it a listen. Uh, if you're thrown off by the commercialness of, you know, Pride and, you know, Big Game, this is a little different. It's, I, I don't want to say it's their high and dry, but it's definitely more raw and, you know, oh, it, yeah. it's kind of like, but it's, it's kind of like the first two Bon Jovi albums. Let's go with that, especially the first Good one. Analogy. Where it's like, yeah, like it's raw, but it's catchy, you know, so. I like that. The fact that it, they didn't spend too much money on it, obviously, is kind of the charm of it and helps the songs along the way. If some of those songs got kind of neutered in production later on, 
then they would have suffered. But I think this is a cool record for that reason. So, and Electra's stupid, man. Like, they don't seem to have a great history of talent relations. Like, Metallica and Motley couldn't wait to get off Electra, and they've said just as much. Uh, you know, but Metallica grandfather claws their way off the label, and Motley said everything they could in the press to get off the label. So, what does that tell you? Like, Electra blows, obviously. You know, so they don't understand. They, they, at least they don't understand rock and roll, as far as I can tell. You know, and not that Atlantic's that much better, but at least they had Zeppelin. So you, you can put that on your, uh, you know, you can put that on your uh, vinyl label there. Uh, as far as what I view of this album, I think Electra may have been slightly put off by Mike Tramp's accent, as far as you know, some of his vocals. Yeah. It's just that's just you know that's just you know my opinion. Sure. Not that it's not that it's you know so uh, glaring that it's. Uh, it's hard to ignore, but maybe to an extent, it was something about his vocal delivery. I'm just, I'm trying to think as far as like what, what would have caused them to reject this record. Did they not like the fact that some of the songs, you know, weren't like what they were hearing on the radio as far as the subject matter, you know, El Salvador, you know, <laughs> all the fallen men, all, all burn in hell, you know, I'm just, you know, even just like based on the titles, you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe. I, it just makes me wonder because, you know, when I listen to the record I hear, I hear a quality record that, you know, should have been in there amongst, you know, some of the, the heavy hitters that you mentioned. And, you know, if, if marketed correctly, it, it should have been a success here as their official debut album. Whereas a lot yeah. of people think uh, Pride is their debut album because it was released on Atlantic and it had the big hits. Yeah, they should have they should have sold it on their own initially, like what Motley did. That way, that they they could call the shots more once they got signed to a place like an Electra, and that's exactly what Motley had going for them. Is that they had all those sales under their belt by themselves, so yeah. the labels yeah. came calling to them. And this record's good enough to where they could have kept it regional and done very well with it. Uh, they could have gigged their asses off and sold them out of the trunk of their car or whatever, and I think it would have taken off that way. Mm -hmm. But who knows? Yeah, open for the I'll... right bands, you know. I mean, yeah. if they open for the right acts, you know. They yeah. they would have gotten eyeballs and, and ears on them. And yeah. you know, who knows? Electra might have done pretty well with this as their debut, leading in to Pride. You know, who, yeah. who Pride would have oh. changed. What, what, when the Children Cry only went was it? It was at least top five, if not a number one song. Yeah, I think that's a top. Uh, ten. I think that was the only time they hit they it might have been the only time they hit the top yeah. 10 I I, I I think i think so but i think i think weight got up there but i want to say when the children cry actually did go number one but i could be wrong i know it was a number one video but as far as radio goes it definitely did almost just as well i am looking uh, it up really quick because oh I, yeah let, let's I'm go ahead wikipedia sure. we're, we're podcasters after <laughs> all okay so here's here's the uh the top 10 facts on white lion they did Both. have they did have a top 10 hit with Wait, peaked at number eight. There you go. When the Children Cry is their biggest hit, it peaked at number three. So they were that close to number one. Yeah. All right. And, it, and it's just, you know, when you look, Little Fighter, 52. Radar <laughs> Love, 59. Like, what happened yeah. there? And that video, those videos were on all the time. I still scratch my head wondering how those didn't yeah. post higher numbers. Well, the payola got lost in the mail, you know, so. That's definitely a possibility, too. You know, you know, yeah. they, you often talk about that. That was a reality. You know, people calling in to dial in TV from the labels when, you know, you, we would be trying to call, like, it's always busy. What's going on? Yeah. You know, they were flooding the phones. You know, you hear about all these stories now. 
I, I actually got, I remember I got, um, God, this is, I can't believe I'm going to admit this on the, on the air, but, uh, I sent out like for a spec newsletter for like the Striper fan club at one point. <laughs> I and, wrote to some of those fan clubs to try to get. Yeah. Started. But why that one out of them? I think, like I said, I was just trying to keep my mom at bay, but, uh, I remember they actually sent a letter out telling people starting on this day, call in to dial MTV to request the honestly video. And of course that effing thing was number one, like the first day. And that's, but that's smart. That's what bands would do. So I, white lion might've had a similar campaign going. I bet if you wrote to their fan club, they probably sent a letter out saying like, Hey, call in for the video. So their chart of positioning for those singles off of Big Game is not indicative of their video success for those same songs. And I can say I'm one of the people that bought the Radar Love 45 to bring it all the way up to 59. Yeah. <laughs> Still back there. Still so when it works. <laughs> yeah. So let's, before we move on to the next record, um, what would you want to play? What do you think we should play from Fight to Survive? I've played Fight to Survive already on the show for the yeah. final pressing. I have a few in mind, but I'm interested to see what you would think. I don't have the track list in front of me. I just think it's a cool record. Okay, well, if, if yeah, you and like I really, it. I really have listened to it recently. I just, uh, I didn't make a note of a favorite track. Uh, like, I remember the third song being really good. Uh, that, that's the one I played, Fight to Survive. Okay, let's go with the first track then. That's a good kickoff. I think I think the first track will convince people that they want to hear the rest of this. So I'm always convinced that a strong opener is a good way to go. Well, I'd have to find it where it is on here on the <laughs> pressing. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Perfect time want, to bust out the post-it notes. I would, yeah. I, would have to do, I would have to do it anyway, you know, whatever song we yeah. pick. So sure. if you want to play, we can play Broken Heart. And it's just yeah. a, quick, a quick fact about Broken Heart. You did mention it before. Uh, Atlantic Records, they did ask White Lion to re-record Broken Heart, and it ended up being recorded slightly different than the version that's on here. So that's that's something to, to look out for as well. When they recorded their third and final album for Atlantic Records, Main Attraction, which is coming up on its 30-year anniversary in, I believe it's uh, March or April. It's, kind of, it's coming up. So we'll likely be talking about White Lion's Main Attraction soon. So, okay, we're going to play... Broken Heart from Fight to Survive. So let's move on to the next record as we continue here before we play another set of tracks. This is something that Joey and I have discussed off the air as far as doing a standalone episode. So we're gonna we're gonna be a little teaser here and discuss this record for a few minutes. It's something both of us can identify with from our childhood as far as not only being music fans. But Joey, as many people know, is a huge wrestling fan and co-host of the Wrestling House Show right here on cnjradio.com. And I also grew up as a big fan of the WWF, mostly, before I you know, started to see other territories. But uh, like so many people, saw Rocky III and saw Hulk Hogan for the first time and then eventually started seeing wrestling on TV in 1984. The WWF here in New York City was on, on I believe it was on Channel 5 and Channel 9 here in, in, in New York City. So I started seeing the World Wrestling Federation programming a lot as a kid and started buying the figures. And as Joey is slowly revealing, we are talking about 
the wrestling album, which was released 35 years ago on November 9th, 1985. Thank you, Joey, for showing us the inner gatefold. And I will grab the vinyl here. As the height of the rock and wrestling connection. If you yes. had MTV, you know about the WWF tie-in. If, if and I'm you got to know how to pony. <laughs> yeah, if, if my brother is watching, he'll appreciate that because we, that's been one of our, you know, like inside jokes over the years, you know, just to, mm, 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 mm. Dude, nah, by the way. Nah, 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 nah. You got to know how to pony. <laughs> uh, no, to do the alligator. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know why I did the, the Spanish version. <laughs> as far as the uh, epic Michael Jackson label, this would be yeah. one of my favorites. I always like this one. It has the WWF. Yeah, it's, got the, it's got the kind of quasi logo on it. Yeah. Um, based off of the WWF logo. So, but, you know, by the way, of the billions of covers there are of Land of a Thousand Dances, not that this isn't one of the best versions. Uh, I, For me, it's the third best. Uh, I, or I would say fourth best. Well, it's one of the most entertaining. It, it's definitely the, one of the most entertaining. So, you know, you, you got to go original. You know, the Wilson Pickett one is oh, standard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My second, my second favorite one is actually the Jay Giles band, the live version. Of, uh, oh, that's a great version, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's yeah. a phenomenal version. I love it so much. Uh, and the third best version, and I have to say it's the third because this, the version on this wrestling album of Land of a Thousand Dances, and this is going to be my one big factoid for this, and we can move on, uh, is based off of the Cannibal and the Headhunters uh, version. Uh, it, it's an old random psychedelic garage band uh, i first heard about him through iggy pop talking about him and so their version of land of a thousand dances is the one that the wrestlers version is based off of okay so if, if you ever go and listen to that version that's where that comes from so the arrangement and everything definitely came from that version i remember when i heard it a few years ago i was like oh my god that's the one they used that's the one they use as a source so yeah but yeah wrestling album is, is so fun i could go on and on about it which we probably should at some point yeah, that's like I said. I think just as purely as 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 old school wrestling fans and as music fans, you know, this is one of those records that does deserve its own standalone episode because there's a lot to unwrap as far as what went into it, you know, how the songs were were done, and you know, where they were, uh, the origins of, of a lot of the songs on here because you know a lot of them weren't just simply written for the wrestlers. A lot of them were already written and recorded years back but again that's for a future episode yeah and uh, this isn't this isn't a bullshit forgettable album too because if it wasn't then there wouldn't be a record store day release from it from epic legacy that's how legitimate this record is okay all right and as my, if my brother's watching he knows that when we went to princeton record exchange i think this was in 2015 this was pretty much the top pick that i made sure that i had to have that day wasn't yeah. the social distortion blue vinyl? It was this, which I ended up getting both of them. But I did. You guys look like the U.S. Were you guys as happy as the U.S. Express <laughs> when uh, you found it? Look at that. I know I was, and you know, eventually my brother also picked up a copy too. Uh, <laughs> so you know, both both of us were were very you know amused and always have been <laughs> amused by this record. But just before I, I, I get into the, the last segment on this record, I do want to note. Look, a few little stats. So, believe it or not, the wrestling album peaked at number 84 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart. And it's kind of hard to find, but I did find one article where somebody actually mentioned 
that the record was officially certified gold with over 500,000 copies sold, which yeah. I can believe. Yeah. I can yeah. believe because WWF was absolutely huge in 1985 and 86. It was yeah. probably, it probably peaked as far as the rock and wrestling part and where they were at with like Hulk Hogan in 87 into 88. But it's, a, I, it's what the world was watching. It, what the world is watching. I could totally believe that they got a gold record with this. So just real quick before we move on to the next record, I, I want to show the color yeah. final edition. So it's a little different on the wrestling album as yeah. they went with a silver label. Yeah, the legacy print, yeah. Yeah, so that is the, the red vinyl. What would you want to play from this? Would you want to play Land of a Thousand Dances? Because I would probably go with I, that. Yeah, let's go with that, and then we'll go deeper if we do a uh, larger episode on it. So, Just in case, you know, yeah. people are interested. You know. Yeah. Isle Driver is also included as oh. seen on the front cover. It has its own independent vinyl sleeve instead of having a, a dual album cover. So the red and yeah. yellow, like Hulk Hogan, that's, that's how Isle yes. Driver looks. Okay, so we're gonna play "Land of a Thousand Dances" from by the rest by the wrestlers officially the is what wrestlers. they were called. Yeah. I mean, shit, fucking SD Jones made it onto the record, you know? <laughs> yes. If you go YouTube the video, it's worth it just to watch uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff kiss his biceps <laughs> to the beats. I mean, wow, just wow. The fact that you have Meatloaf playing the drums. And that's not the weirdest thing in the video. It's probably the the most normal thing in the video. I'm Says glad a lot about up. that video. I'm glad you mentioned that about Meatloaf because I clearly hear his background vocals in the na 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 na. Oh yeah. You could you could yeah. hear his distinct vocal in there. Yeah, you can but, hear him more than Cindy if she's even in the mix. So Cindy's yeah. in, in in the mix uh, for certainly in Real American. But oh we'll yeah. Get oh yeah. Oh, get yeah. into all that. Mona Flampe. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Let's get into some more songs. We're gonna all play, right, brother. We're going to play... <laughs>
Broken Heart from White Lion's debut album, Fight to Survive, which was the opening track on the record, followed by another opening track, Land of a Thousand Dances, the opening track from the wrestling album, both taken from the original vinyl pressings. So we're going to move on next. So the next record up, this one's not going as further back as some of the records we've discussed. This one goes back 20 years, originally released on November 14th, 2000. And it's the first and only solo album to date from Rush's Getty Lee. And this is the Black Friday Record Store Day exclusive that was released on November 29th, 2019, limited to 5,000 copies. And when this album was originally released, it peaked at number 52 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart. And I didn't find any sales certification anywhere. So I would assume this being 20 years ago, you know, uh, I believe Napster was around or it was starting to creep up. So I wonder yeah. how sales might have been impacted. But I would think he sold close to a gold record status on this. He, yeah, and he sold to who he was going to sell to. Like, that's a fan base where they're going to buy it physically anyway, even if it is available to steal online. Yeah. And 2000 was still a great year for sales. I know 99 was the peak year of CD sales, but 2000 was super strong also. So the internet wasn't really playing a factor at that point. I could tell you for, as someone that worked in retail at that point, like it wasn't creeping up yet at all, hardly. So, okay. you know, and I remember we, we listened to it at the time and liked it. And uh, this is my, uh, my shout out to my old boss, Logan, who's we're friends now, but uh, someone, he was so just taken aback by someone that would have uh, not the gall, but, you know, just like randomly asks him, so what does this Getty Lee solo album sound like? He's like, what the F do you think it sounds like? It sounds like Rush. Like, did, did you think it was going to sound like Soundgarden because Matt Cameron plays Cameron. the drums on it? Yeah. Is that what you were thinking? Is it like, he didn't say it to the guy's face, but when he left, he was like, what the hell was that? <laughs> so, I just like, of course it's going to sound like Rush. I mean, it doesn't sound like exactly like Rush, but you know, it's the well, damn it's voice of Rush. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah, so, you know, Especially modern Rush, modern Rush for sure. Yeah. Oh, Getty wrote his share of, of songs. Yeah. So yeah. I think you had to expect that a lot of it was going to sound like Rush. But that's all I, I think about when this album comes up is that moment in time. So as you mentioned, Matt Cameron did play drums, not on the entire record. I think he has um, some other drummers on here, but he, he did play on this record. So immediately when I found out about that before the record came out, because from my perspective, Getty was doing a lot of radio promotion and he was on our local classic rock radio station Q 104.3. Oh. So he was, he was promoting this record. And I think he was on WNEW too, 102.7 when they were still playing music. And I, I think this, I may be wrong, but I, I do vaguely recall that he was doing promotion around the, the New York radio circuit. And, uh, that was his uh, 10, 10 wins appearance. Did that go well? <laughs> I didn't catch that one. Okay. But, but, so my perspective was he, he was doing the radio rounds and the, the stations were playing, working at perfect a lot from this record, the, the lead single. So I've played that on the show before when, when we, I did the, the Black Friday episode for, for 2019. So I, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with the record, but uh, are there any tracks that, that stand out to you? Uh, I'm going to have to have you pick. Uh, I have not listened to this recently. I even own it, but uh, I have it on CD. 
but I, I did not obtain it during uh, the record store day, uh, so I missed out on it. But it was, I just haven't re-familiarized myself with it, but I, I've heard it a handful of times, and I know I do like the album. I just, I'm just guilty of not being familiar with it. So what's a good track you think would get me back on the horse here? After revisiting this album again before our discussion, I would say let's play the third track, Window to the World. All right. So that's the one I'm going to go with. Lastly, we should point out that this record was recorded during that downtime with Rush when uh, Neil Peart's daughter had had the car accident, uh, unfortunately passed away, and then his wife, unfortunately, passed away shortly after. So that's why Getty had recorded this record or had the time to record this record as they were on a hiatus. They really didn't know if they were going to be coming back at the time. So that's what resulted in this solo record. So I'm not sure as a fan of Rush, if he's considering doing another record, I think it would be good if he considered doing another solo album, but now there's rumblings that him and Alex may get back together and do something. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big story yesterday. Yeah. As of this recording. So we may have something like that to look forward to. So moving on, we know we're going to play window to the world from Getty Lee's my favorite headache. Let's move on to the next record, which goes back a little further back to the great year as discussed before of 1990. This was released 30 years ago on November 20th, 1990. And it's the third album by Cinderella on Mercury Records at the time, Heartbreak Station. This is a recent reissue colored vinyl press. If you remember the Black Friday 2020 episode, we discussed the reissue of Tesla's great radio controversy. This pressing was released by the same company you can see here the OB strip that's on a like a Coke bottle green vinyl. So this was released by A&R Studios and it's actually on the Vertigo label. So they use the overseas Vertigo label as opposed to the oh. US Mercury Records label. That's so, this, fun. so this is limited to 1000 copies on this clear blue vinyl pressing. Yeah, yeah I think I missed out on this one, uh, sadly. It's I, I can't seem to find one that's decently priced at this point. Yeah, and I mean, to, to the point that you mentioned in the last episode, there really should be a black vinyl pressing, you know, in the thousands. Because I think the album deserves it. And uh, as far as how the album performed, it peaked at number 19 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart, and it certified platinum with over 1 million copies sold. So as, you know, fans at the time... I think we saw that their their sales and their popularity was sort of starting to decline here, even though the record did very well. I don't think it did as well as Long Cold Winter. It didn't have the same presence on MTV, as I recall. You know, you, you did see the videos for Shelter Me and Heartbreak Station. Still Climbing came out a few years later, and by that point, obviously, you know what was going on with mainstream music. So what was your perspective as far as Heartbreak Station? You know, were you a fan of it? How do you gauge it against the first two albums? Because I see a lot of people who say that this is their best album. I don't happen to agree with that. I think it's, it's up there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like their third best album. Like, I kind of tend to go in the order of release as far as one, two, three, four for myself, honestly. Although Long Cold Winter could make a case for being their best album. I think I'm still Night Songs overall. 
but I like this one. I, I feel, though, like if Tom Kiefer has been faking it this whole time about his love of like roots music and blues music and even country to an extent, he's very good at convincing me. I, I heard a similar conversation about this on another podcast I'm a fan of on like whatever never mind that's part of Cobras at Fire, where I was thinking the same thing at one point, like remember that whole like blues movement, you know, like in the late eighties with like the sunset strip bands and it came off so phony. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they, they, I mean, they were also from Philly. Yeah. Yeah. They were also from Philly and there's like always that kind of thing. Like, well, who really started it? You know, but like you even saw like Motley and Poison, like, like have that kind of blues stance, you know, like, and, and Rat also did it too. Great White did it, but for some reason, Great White pulled it off a little better, but it, it did. They were all kind of lumped in with those bands that are like, oh yeah, that's really our roots. You know, it's like, no, you know, it's not like, the bluesiest you got was your old Aerosmith records and you didn't go past that, you know, but you know, especially now when you look back on a lot of it comes off phony, but for some reason, Tom Kiefer really pulls it off. I think he actually is a real fan of that stuff. And like I said, if he's not, he's done a great job of convincing me over the years. Uh, I think some of the stuff he experimented with on heartbreak station is uh, honest. And mm -hmm. I think one of the best songs on the album is heartbreak station. Uh, even though P some people kind of diss it as a clone of Don't Know What You Got, I kind of think it's a better song. Uh, I, th I think it's a really cool track. I love the strings on it. Like, everything about it, I think, is an upgrade from Don't Know What You Got. And, and nothing wrong with that song. But Heartbreak Station, the song itself, is just so... Like, I'm talking about the, the song itself, the title track. Um, it's just a... It's it's like one of those next level songs. I really dig it. I like Shelter Me, of course, and One for Rock and Roll. You know, there's some fun songs on there. Uh, but it's still like my third favorite album overall. So. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with, with you as far as it's not their best album. You know, I know a lot of people have, have said that. I've seen it. I've heard it. But I tend to go with Long Cold Winter as my favorite Cinderella record, followed by Night Songs, and, and followed by this. Yeah. Still climbing, I'm not very familiar with, so it's automatically my number four. Yeah, I don't think a lot of us have listened to Still Climbing a lot. I, I know I like a lot of songs on there, and it's one of those if I had listened to it a lot more on repeated listens, and it, it may be, it could be the third best. I don't know, but I just, yeah, once again, I'm with you. I just don't yeah. have that history with it, you know. I yeah, got it way I, later. Like, I got it way after the fact that I didn't even buy it when it came out, so. Yeah, by 1994, like, I was immersed in punk and hardcore scene and playing in yeah. bands, listening to those bands, you know, that, that album was completely, you know, lost, flew completely over my radar at that point. And I discovered later that they, you know, maybe, you know, a year or so later, you know, seeing it used in CD stores, like Cinderella has a new record out, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of sad because, you know, they had a really good run with yeah. the first three records. They had a yeah. really, really good, respectable run. Yeah. And um, I'm actually looking, Shelter Me peaked at number 36. Heartbreak Station peaked at number 44, so they didn't even crack the top 40. That's crazy. So, Shelter you would think was, that that you would think that that song would do better too, but it didn't. Yeah, so um, it, it's it is it's very surprising. Even for 1990 standards, you would, yeah. you would have thought both of those. Yeah, songs I mean, have done freaking freaking Nelson and Warrant were still riding high in 1990, and so was Poison. So there's no excuse or reason why Heartbreak Station shouldn't have been a top 10. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah, it's 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 amazing to me, you know. Even all these years later, when I revisit this album, 
I, I still think that, uh, you know, they were shorted a little bit, you know, too, too soon, I would say. You know, MTV kind of pulled the rug on, from under them because, like I said, I remember there was a little bit of a video presence, but it wasn't nearly the same as what they were getting on Long Cold Winter and Night Songs. Not even, yeah. not even close, you know, as yeah. far as the presence and, um, yeah. you know, the relevance. So, you know, listening to this record again a few times as I have before we got on here, you know, singles are great, but I would go a little deeper into the album onto side two. Song like Make Your Own Way. Mm, what do you think yeah, about that's that? That's a good one. I like that song a lot, actually. I was kind of hoping Tom would play it on his uh, solo show when I saw him, but he did not. But he, go, he goes deep from Cinderella tracks on there, not just playing his solo stuff. But yeah, that'd be a good one for him to bring back for sure. Like that song. So we agree on that. So let's go and play some more tunes before we get back to some more discussion. So let's play from Getty Lee's debut and only solo album to date. From 20 years ago, from My Favorite Headache, we're going to play Window to the World, third track from the 180 gram 2019 Black Friday Press, followed by Cinderella, Make Your Own Way, from Heartbreak Station, from the limited 1,000 copy press on clear blue vinyl.
All right, we're back. That was Geddy Lee with Window to the World from his lone solo album to date, My Favorite Headache, taken from the 180-gram yeah. double vinyl press from Black Friday Record Store Day 2019, followed by Make Your Own Way from Cinderella's third album, Heartbreak Station, taken from the limited 1,000-copy press on clear blue vinyl. That clear blue vinyl reissue was released on October 24th, 2020, so very recently. So let's move on to the next set of albums to be discussed here. And we're going back 30 years again. And uh, I would say this is semi-pivotal for me only because one of the songs on this record was the very first that I would ever hear from this band. And the band I'm referring to, one of the greatest punk bands of all time, Bad Religion. Nice. As their album Against the Grain was released 30 years ago on November 23rd, 1990. And this is a reissue press that I have here that was reissued sometime in 2009. And, that looks you know, like, real nice. Like yeah. many of the bands like this, no peak chart positions at the time. They hadn't, they hadn't reached that point yet where they were cracking the billboard charts. So no sales and certification. So my experience, as far as how I got into band religion, it starts with this very record here. And once again, one of the Verderame brothers, I've mentioned thousands of times, it seems, the oldest brother, Frank, he borrowed the cassette from one of his friends and brought it over to my house one day and had me hear Faith Alone, the last track on side one. So he had me listen to that as my introduction to Bad Religion. And he was just, he just loved the band and he loved this record, but he, he made me hear that song first and once albums like Generator and then Recipe for Hate were eventually released. Oh, yeah. And then I started getting further into Bad Religion, starting with buying Recipe for Hate. But it started right here by hearing Faith Alone from this record. So I'm interested, yeah, to, hear, cool. I'm interested to hear your thoughts or perspective on how you got into Bad Religion and, you know, was it, was it with this record or was it something close? And I'll... No, I mean, it was, it was around Recipe for Hate. Um, I uh, say because you got into them at the best time I think and, and nothing wrong with their early 80s output I actually have their self-titled on vinyl nice uh, that looks like a really nice pressing but yeah, yeah I really I'd, I'd, I'd always heard them I definitely was aware of the imaging and the band before I ever heard them uh, and I remember when I heard them I was surprised at how catchy their stuff was Yeah, you see that logo which is one of the most iconic logos in music history in my opinion and that's about as punk rock as you can get i mean you gotta you gotta understand more than most people like you went to catholic school and <laughs> yeah. like you see that logo and it's like that is punk rock that's a, that is as contrary as you can get uh you know especially in your neighborhood i would think and but mm -hmm. if you down here in texas too if you wore those t-shirts you were flying a flag you know it's uh that's a whole other ball game and that's uh that's not something that uh you can just walk down the street with at that time especially uh, in either of our neighborhoods and like not get noticed mm -hmm. uh so it was it was a thing so like i said i remember i was expecting him to sound like the misfits or something i didn't i expected like this crazy ass like almost like you know like satanicish kind of thing you know obviously but the fact that they were straight up punk rock and also like i said they almost had like beach boy melodies going uh, on very melodic and I love that. Like that is like, this is what I want. This is what I, you know, and even though I came in around that time, I heard, I, 
I heard Infected, I heard American Jesus, and then I heard 21st Century Digital Boy later on, not even knowing that that was a, you know, a re-recording. A re-recording, yeah. Yeah, and I believe it comes from Against the Grain, doesn't it? Does. it? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, but like I said, you expect them to be the heaviest band in the world, and they're not, but it's actually turns out it's better for them not being that way. They just write really cool songs, and they're one of the great bands of all time, in my opinion, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, you came in, I'm so jealous that you came in, like, and got to go through that with Generator and all that. I didn't. I came in during the major label thing. It, yeah, it was sort of a, a slow build, you know, like, he brought he brought the tape over to have me hear Faith Alone. Then Generator came out. I'm sure he played me something, but when Recipe for Hate came out, and I heard American Jesus, and I heard the title track, the opening track, Recipe for Hate, I was just like, I gotta buy this record, and I immediately bought the original Epitaph CD, which I still own. And right before they got signed to Atlantic Records, and then they reissued the album. The influence Bad Religion has had on me, just as a music fan and a musician, on the stuff that I recorded and wrote with with Spacebeard, uh, it's you know I, I I can't discount them. They they were a huge influence on me as far as you know some guitar playing and uh, especially the melodic background vocals. I, I took a lot of influence, you know, to use some of that stuff. And yeah, as Joey's pulling out the first Bad Religion record, and you know, to your point that you said before about them, you know, you think initially they might sound like the Misfits. Those early records, they're 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 very raw, very yeah, uh, yeah. quote unquote punk rock. You know, those those early records are are really really aggressive. Uh, even when they got back together after the infamous Into the Unknown record, which I'm a fan of that record. I don't know why they dismissed that one so much. I get why they do. But I think they should be a little more kinder to that record. But, you know, once they came back with Suffer and No Control, which are raw in themselves, but they, they had those melodic background vocals that they were already starting as early as those records. Fair Religion, as far as influence on me, and I can't say enough how, how great I think that they are and still continue to be. They still continue to make great records, you know? Yeah. I would say uh, people getting into them, the, the one for me that still gets me to this day is Infected. Can we make that your the the last track on there you were talking about? Can we make that your pick? That's a good song too. Are you talking about Faith Alone? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna suggest we play that one because that was my entry point in into Bear Religion. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so before we move on to the next record, we've settled on that. We're gonna play Faith Alone from Bear Religions Against the Grain. So why don't we move on to the next record? Absolutely. All right, going back into the hard and heavy grab bag, but. This is something that wouldn't be pulled out of the hard and heavy grab bag way back in the day, I think, and might throw some people for a loop. But, you know, we have a lot of rock and roll in our logo, as many people have seen. But, you know, Joey and I don't listen to just rock and roll and heavy metal and punk rock, you know? And Joey's slowly revealing that PA. I see it right there. So he's giving a little teaser. Ship is rolling by. <laughs> Mothership. The Mothership Connection. I see we have varying uh, colors on our album covers. Yeah. So we are yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. Parliament. Yeah, mine's very Connection. old. And uh, Joey, is that, a, is that like an original copy you have there? Yeah, I believe so. I see. Yeah, you got the blue label. Okay. You got the blue Castle yeah. Michael label. So my copy here is the special 3D edition. That's nice. I need to get that too. I w- I w- of course, I would own that just for the cover. But uh, right. it's a great album anyway. And I... I could probably stand to have an upgrade here. This one's this one's been through a couple of wars, but it still yeah. looks pretty good for the amount of times I played it. 
And the reason we're bringing this record up here is once again, show the album cover here in the back. This album was released 45 years ago on December 12th, 1975. So as a kid in my vinyl hand-me-down collection that was given to me and played on my original Fisher-Price record player, I had Parliament's Mothership Connection. I had a blue label copy like you had there. And I also had a Aqua Boogie 12-inch on a one-sided vinyl. Yeah. The other side had that like smooth, you know, it said do not yeah. play on the label. Yeah. Right. So that was my experience with Parliament as a kid, was having Mothership Connection on the blue label and that Aqua Boogie 12-inch. So the interesting thing about this reissue from, again, 2015, is they did not use the blue Casablanca label. They went with the record and Filmworks label, which obviously for timeline reasons for reissue purposes is wrong, but that's what happened with this reissue. So that's just one of those things as a center ring label guy that I wanted to point out. But uh, I, I kind of yeah. like when they do that just for people that had the original. It's like, okay, this is a reissue and we're going to make it somewhat different in different ways. So you can almost kind of justify the purchase in that sense. Yeah, I guess, you know, it makes the original a little more rare, but there's, there's a little hype stick yeah. there. If you see. Yeah. So I picked this up at Princeton Record Exchange a handful of years ago and uh, re-familiarized myself with it after so many years of not really hearing it in its entirety or hearing a, a few songs here and there. When I got this vinyl press, I really started listening to it a bit more and to the point where, you know, I could pick some songs that I would say are, are highlights. So I'm interested to see what your thoughts are as far as the record itself. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of people who are very familiar with this record would immediately cite how often sampled it was, you know, if you were... Oh. A kid in the '90s, you couldn't get away from some of the grooves on here. If, if you saw yeah. the Dr. Dre videos on MTV, I would say just the Mothership Connection song alone—that's like a third of the Chronic album, right there. I mean, uh, that was always my joke: is that like uh, I don't have, I don't, I'm not hating on the Chronic. It's like I don't own it because I own Parliament Records already. So it's a little bit of that. Uh, but man, one of the best bands ever is any conglomerate of George Clinton, whether it's Parliament, Funkadelic, the P-Funk All-Stars, whichever you're calling, you know, whatever day you're calling it, whatever. Uh, just one of the greatest bands ever assembled and also got it done on stage. They look like they're having fun. They are fun. Uh, I, I've heard a handful of songs as a kid here and there and in my early teens. Weirdly enough, the thing that actually kicked off my fandom, like, okay, I'm going to finally buy something of theirs, was uh, the movie PCU. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't. Uh, oh, it's great. It's such a fun movie. It's it's the easiest 80 minutes for me to get through. It's, uh, it's kind of framed as the animal house for the 90s, for the grunge era. <laughs> And it is that. It's it's great. And P Funk has a little little cameo in it, and uh, George Clinton and all the guys uh, at that time. They were actually associated with Prince at that time, so they were putting out some material through Paisley Park, uh, and they even cover Erotic City as part of the soundtrack for for that whole thing. There's an EP uh, involved with their PCU appearance. You should check okay. out. But. I remember I was like, man, these guys just look like they're just killing it out there and they're just fun. And I was like, I, I know about this band. I need to get them. So that's kind of what started it for me. I, I went really hard about early 2000s because there were some CD reissues out finally. They finally remastered their CDs out. So I got up from the downstroke. 
I got Chocolate City, I got Mothership Connection. Uh, so I just kept going and going and going. Uh, so yeah, and I remember when I finally, I think it's, I think it's on Up for the Downstroke. I think it's a song called Testify. And uh, you could totally hear where the Black Crows got Remedy from on that track. You know, just little things like that you pick up on. And, and actually, when one of the only times I ever saw the Black Crows live, or in fact, the only time I saw them on the Lions tour, they actually threw in a little bit of Give Up the Funk in the middle of one of their songs. Oh, shit. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. So clearly, maybe, I was like, that almost led credence to my theory that they did take from Testify, you know. So any anything Parliament... Uh, this is a good one to start on because you'll recognize, I, I feel like people actually that are getting into Parliament, like Dr. Dre would want you to get into Parliament, but I feel like it kind of pulls the curtain back on him a little bit because it's like, man, you're not as original as we thought you were. Oh, for sure. Like for the sure. sampling is, it's, you know, it's different from like, I would say what the Dust Brothers would do where they would take one bit from this one song and one bit from another song. But the fact that when you listen to like Mothership Connection, for example, the title track, and he just took the whole chorus for let me ride off you right like like it's just it's freaking blatant so there's a little bit of hack going on there i mean he's not a p diddy hack don't get me wrong oh god like don't get me started on him yeah i like dre uh, that being yeah dre is like fucking frank zappa compared to uh p diddy uh so yeah just get this stuff. It's great. It's some of the best American music ever. Uh, I don't even care what era you get it in. I don't care if it's Parliament or Funkadelic or P-Funk All-Stars or whatever. Or uh, Bootsy's Rubber Band. Don't discount them. Woo. Uh, the Bootsy Collins solo stuff is excellent. Uh, so, yeah. Just get into it. Go down this freaking funk, crazy-ass UFO-filled rabbit hole. Make that funk the P-Funk. That's what you can say, right? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go watch Do That Stuff live from the Summit, you know, like those Summit shows where they're pro shot with the UFO, yeah. and there's 40 guys on stage, and they're all playing a damn instrument. Hey, and my cat, yeah, yeah. She's a oh. P-Funk fan, too. She funks everything up, man. <laughs> so, well, we should get into some of the little statistics. This has got to be one of their highest selling albums if not one of their most successful it peaked oh yeah at, i mean give up the funk you know yeah. sold this record to the to to the suburbs yeah it peaked at number 13 on the billboard top 200 albums chart and at number four on the billboard r&b albums chart and it's certified platinum with over 1 million copies sold and like i said it was released 45 years ago december 12 1975 so getting back to the track you would want to represent this record on our show. What do you think? Do you I mean, go with do you go with get, some of the obvious, or do you go with you know one of the uh, hidden hidden gems? What do you think? I, I'm tempted to do just P Funk wants to get funked up, but honestly, I think to my point earlier, some people haven't heard Mothership Connection, so I say go with that. Okay. I mean, give up the funk. Everybody's heard that, so let's yeah. go, let's meet in the middle here, and let's do Mothership Connection, Star Child. So let's do that then. We're going to have an interesting block of music here. Bear Religion from their album Against the Grain with Faith Alone to a beat immediately followed by. Let me make sure I get the full title correctly here. Mothership Connection, Star Child. For <laughs> the kids fans watching. Thanks. And yeah, and you got to say, you know, and, and that's just one thing I want to say before we play these songs. You know, as a young kid with that hand-me-down vinyl collection, I was able to, you know, associate that 
oh, hey, you know, this, this band is on the same label as Kiss, this band that I really like. So I should really listen, you know, and, and check this out. You know, just as like a four or five year old, it, it piqued my interest because, well, hey, these guys are on the same label as Kiss. And interestingly, being both on Casablanca, they had big stage shows, obviously Funkadelic had oh. the, uh, the outrageous costumes and, and all that stuff too, so. There's a lot of parallels there more than people realize. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So having said that, here is Bear Religion with Faith Alone from Against the Green, followed by Mothership Connection. From Parliament, Mothership Connection.
Well, all right. Star Child, citizens of the universe, recording angels. We have returned to claim the pyramid. Partying on the mothership. I am the mothership connection. Get down in 3D. Light year group. Well, all right. You hear the noise? Ain't nobody but me and the boy. Get down. In your hip and come on to the mothership. Loose boot, doing the bump. Hustle on over here.
side A on their album Against the Grain, followed by Parliament with Mothership Connection, Star Child from the album Mothership Connection. Next up is an album that I think a few people might have, or, or definitely a few people bought on its original release date, which was 45 years ago on January 6th, 1976. Need I say more? Well, I have to say it for the audio version, it's Frampton Comes Alive. But when you see it, it's just instantly recognizable to so many, I'm sure. Yeah. So again, this is another album, just like Parliament, Funkadelic's Mothership Connection. This was also initially in my hand-me-down vinyl collection because my brother got it for Christmas, I believe Christmas of 77, if I'm not mistaken. So I ended up with his copy as a kid. So this was one that I would often listen to as a kid and, um, you know, just again, as one of those appreciators of the center ring labels, even as a little kid, I really liked this classic A&M records center ring label, the white label with the gold letters. So since, since you call since you call the Epic one, the Michael Jackson label, can I refer to that as the Joe Jackson record label? Cause that's who I immediately think of when I, yes, uh, I am totally see with that. that logo. I'm with that. Yeah. And you know, Joe, Joe Jackson probably, probably doesn't get enough mention because I think a lot of people would even say the police, you know, as far as A&M representation, you know, the police, sure. is a good one, I, you know, I would say Frampton, this one is a, is a good representation because it was so huge, but yeah, I would accept the sure. George Jackson label for sure. Yeah. yeah. But the police, the police had their own labels, so they didn't. After uh, the first few really, records. Yeah, exactly. They didn't really use the A&M one very much as much. I think the first, uh, first three. First yeah, something like that. Because I know Ghost in the Machine definitely has its own no. label. So that's, Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity. Ghost in the Machine oh, okay. and Synchronicity both used custom labels. Okay. But the first three records, they used the, the classic oh, okay. white gold label. Yeah. And Shame on me I, for forgetting that. Yeah, hey, we don't always know everything. That's, you know, yeah. all of us are teaching each other something yeah. you know, 
every episode. But that, that, that's definitely the Joe Jackson label for me. So uh, I, I fully agree with that. So, and I know that both of us have a, a big mutual respect for John Regan, who played bass with Peter Frampton numerous yeah. times. Yeah. So I know we have that that shared appreciation. So I think he he played on the sequel to that, I believe. Yes, so, he did. Yeah. Frampton comes alive too. Yeah. So I'm interested to know, you know, as far as you know, what what song would you want to play from Frampton Comes Alive? You know, because you could play, you could play the classic rock standards that have been heard countless like, amounts of times. Like anything besides those two songs. I'm not I'm not hating on them, but no one needs to hear those hardly. No one needs to hear those outside of the context of this record ever again. Like, it's, put it on the record if you own it. But, yeah, play anything. I, I, I'm leaving it to you here. Like, I, I'm tempted to do, like, a Jumpin' Jack Flash or something like that. Or I was wondering if you were going to say, you know, let's play yeah. Stone's cover. Yeah, it's fun, man. And I I've, I don't have – here's the thing. I'm, I'm probably one of the only – I'm not saying this to be contrarian or have any kind of credibility here. I don't have this on vinyl. I do have the deluxe edition on CD. I have uh, a very, Yeah, it's, it's very nice. The whole entire uh, thing. That's like the whole entire recording. Yeah. I, I like My thing is, like, I'm always trying to I, – I worked in secondhand for years, and I just can't find a nice one of this that's, like, perfect enough. It doesn't have to be perfect because I realize that they're just all going to be used and played. I can't find one without that ring at all. The ring is almost just part of the album cover yeah, at this <laughs> point. Yeah. That is part of the album cover. <laughs> This was, so, this was a $5 copy I found at Record Collector in New Jersey. Yeah. And, uh, it, it plays really well. No no skips, no no pops, yeah. anything. It's pretty quiet. Yeah. It'll it'll eventually happen for me. I mean, I might even plunk down on a big anniversary one if they do one soon. They'll probably do one for the uh, 50th, I bet, coming up. Uh, yeah. Uh, how could they not? But, yeah, the older ones just seem cool. Like I said, that, that ring is just part of it. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I, I'm, I'm voting for Jumpin' Jack Flash, but play whatever you want. No, I'm with you. Let's play it right now. Right. From Frampton Comes Alive, here is Jumpin' Jack Flash. Get out your packets of Tide. <laughs> And I had 
That was Peter Frampton with his take on Jumpin' Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones from the legendary live album, Frampton Comes Alive, which we didn't mention before we played the track. It peaked at number one on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart, and as of now, it's multi-platinum with over 8 million copies sold. I gotta imagine it's it's pretty that, that, uh, pretty high that, up nowadays, maybe a little above 8 million. I, it's got it. I mean, especially because they count them as two each. There's no way that just 4 million people bought that. Yeah. If 1 million people in Los Angeles alone bought Rumors, then this has to be way higher uh, in album sales. I can't even imagine. That also proves that they probably got counterfeited to death, but who knows? And it's his, it has to be his most successful record ever, right? Oh, yeah. Without yeah, even easily, looking it up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't he couldn't top it. Like he, that album, it's it it jump started and killed his career almost simultaneously. It's so weird. Like, yeah, uh, I, I've it, heard of you know I saw his behind the music episode on VH1. You know, his yeah. trajectory, it's like Twisted Sister in a way. It was like way up here and then like a, a yeah. really fast decline. Yeah. Oh that, yeah, for sure. There's there's a funny uh, I don't want to say tribute. There's a parody of I'm in you. Uh, by Frank Zappa called I Have Been In You. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's definitely, it's it's meant to be kind of a shot at that whole side of the industry. But anyway, there you, you go. Now, just before we get to the next record, I just want to mention that it's funny because, you know, just the other day I'm watching uh, reruns of Free's Company and the episode was on where they show, you know, they show the album cover. He's like, you want to listen to this new Peter Frampton record? You know, he's like, oh, wow. So the fix was in. They, they tried. That's a weird promotion. Holy crap. I was like, I, I was like, I kind of forgot about that. That's, that's, that's funny. Like, was that like wow. a promotional tie-in? Yeah. What'd they pay for that? I wonder. Uh, yeah. It was like, you know, in the early seasons, you know, when you were still living over the ropers. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So that interesting diversion. Let's go to the next record. For the subject at hand here, the Vinylversary edition, and we're going back 30 years again to that great fucking year of 1990, and you know this was a record that definitely opened my ears up more to this band, other than just the stuff that I was seeing on Headbangers Ball on MTV and you know hearing on the radio, on the random, like on our local college radio station, 89.5 WSOU. So the record I'm talking about was released 30 years ago on January 26, 1991, and it's out ahead again. And if I'm not mistaken, this is their first uh, major label record because they were on Bronze and a few other labels before, right? But yeah, it was considered I think, I think that I think this is their first Sony uh, release. So we're talking about 1916. Just want to make yeah. sure the title. Yeah, 1916, yeah. Yeah, I, I came in uh, with I didn't hear Ace of Spades first, which is crazy to think. Uh, wow, really? I heard the first song I ever heard by him, uh, to my recollection, was Cradle to the Grave because of the Metal Year soundtrack. Oh wow! Okay, I can see that. Yeah, it was the opening. Uh, it was the opening credit song, and it was on the soundtrack, and that was the first thing I ever owned, and I think the first thing I ever heard by them. That's one of I the earliest felt... things I heard by them too. Yeah, nice, nice, and. Uh, like I said, if I had Headbangers Ball on MTV before all that, I probably would have heard Eat the Rich or something like that before all this. Uh, but yeah, that was that was where it came in. But yeah, this was the first full-length uh, Motorhead album I ever owned as well. Big memories of it. I never did see the entire full concert of the 1916 show, the one they did in black and white. 
but they showed all those videos. I've seen it like Tarantino style yeah. because they have bangers ball, but like I've definitely seen the Angel City video a lot. Uh, I, I love this record, man. It's even got like some the thing people think Motorhead just like one thing, and they yeah, 95% of their output is like the same speed thing, but there's always these interesting diversions on the album. This this album's no exception. Like, you know, the was it uh Love Me Forever, of course, yeah. but also the nightmare stuff, Dreamtime. Uh yeah, so there's some diversion on here, but yeah, it's also a cool meat potatoes motorhead record. But I, I love these are some of my favorite lyrics ever. I love the lyrics to uh Angel City and Go Into Brazil. Those are super funny songs. And since people can't understand what Lemmy is singing most of the time, but you really should follow along with the lyrics on here. Uh, Angel City is great. Just dreams of being a rich rock star, you know, because Lemmy's the anti-rock star, even though he's like one of the greatest icons ever. I want a backstage pass and drink Bon Jovi's booze for free. It's such a great line. I want to be an intellectual heterosexual. You know, like, I, was just, I was just reading that line. So fun, man. And, and they played going to Brazil. They got to be on the Tonight Show. Uh, it was it was like uh, one of the first uh, one of the first years that Jay Leno was hosting, and Motorhead was on there. I guess Sony got him on there, and they heard him in rehearsal. Some they claim I'm sure someone just had the CD booklet out. They were rehearsing going to Brazil, and they said, "Oh, you can't say the fuck word on there," you know, and so they dropped it on the show. But you can actually find uh, YouTube clips of. Uh, Plan going to Brazil. Yeah, it's a party now. Uh, but yeah, this is a very important album for me. Uh, so I'm glad 1916 exists. It's always going to be in the upper echelon of my Motorhead records. And it's weird because yeah. now nowadays it's kind of seemed to be lost to history in a sense. I think people that lived around it love this album and it's in their top albums. But it definitely isn't in the conversation. People definitely lean on those early classic stuff. And of course, sure. nothing wrong with Overkill another perfect day and all that stuff but people really should hit anything 1991 and after uh you know of course the final lineup of the band they put out some killer material uh you know wurzel's on this one it's that lean in from this is the classic era it's like the end of the classic era and the beginning of the modern era at the same time on this record so it's a really this is a really neat bridge uh in the timeline for motorhead and that this is one of the ones I would probably put in people's hands as far as like this is what you can expect even if you're going this way or you're going that way. For sure. So it's a great record for that reason alone, but I just love it anyway. So Okay. So before I get into some thoughts about the record, some little stats here. This is one of the rare albums by Motorhead that cracked the Billboard Top Two Hundred albums chart. It peaked at number one hundred and forty two. And in the UK, it obviously did better. It peaked at number 24. No sales, nice. no sales certification. I couldn't find anything for US. I couldn't find anything even for the UK. You know, I would have thought maybe a gold record in the UK, but who knows, nope. I guess. So the pressing that I have here is one that I picked up last year. I ordered from a seller in Greece off Discogs. So this is actually a Greek pressing instead of the WTG label that we got here in the States on the CDs and the cassettes, this is actually on an Epic label, one of the white labels from the early nineties. So this pressing is awesome. You know, if anyone's looking for a copy because there isn't uh, very many reissues out these days, 
I would highly recommend this one, and it really wasn't even that expensive. And Joey is showing the white vinyl press. Yeah, I love it. Back on black pressing on white. Yeah. <laughs> A little contradictory, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it's still great. And uh, yeah, this one plays great for me, actually. I, uh, I'm happy with this pressing. Yeah, I can't say enough nice things about this record. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those records where you go, you know, which song do I play? I mean, there's so many to, to choose from. And I just want to make a note here. You know, I, I alluded to it earlier, but this album has their homage to the Ramones, R-A-M-O-N-E-S. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, they have some tracks produced by Ed Stasium, who produced so many of the legendary Ramones yeah. records and recordings. And I, I believe they started this record with Ed Stasium and they You can you can hear him on this record for sure. Like oh, yeah. that's the other thing. That that's yeah. what that's another thing that I like about it. They probably should have stayed with him. I don't know why he's not on the whole thing, but uh, that would be another thing that would make it stick out even more. Uh, by the way, you mentioned R A M O N E S has the distinction of being the shortest, shortest. video ever aired on yes. M T V at a minute at minute seven, I believe. Yeah. yeah. It was like, I, and I remember, you know, as a viewer watching, it was easily like the quickest. You saw the little credits at the beginning of the video and it immediately it was like there again at the end. You're like, damn, that's quick. Yeah. And it's funny because obviously the Ramones play it faster when they cover it. Cause you know, of course they, they wanted to cover this song. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, and you, have you ever seen the last Ramones show that we're yes, out I of here video? Yeah. Yeah. And was like they're trying to get Lemmy rushed on stage. He, they're plugging him in still. It's like this is the most unrehearsed song ever. Uh, and yeah, and like by the time they figure their shit out, the song's over. <laughs> like, like when they brought Dee Dee out, when they brought Dee Dee out, it was a complete oh, mess. When he did Love oh, Kills, I mean, yeah, the hell that, that's there? almost it's almost fitting. But yeah, it's like a train. It is wreck. fitting because the Ramones were like a train wreck most of the time. And Johnny's yeah. like, "Come on, get out here." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yelling at Lemmy like come on Lemmy get yeah. your fucking ass out here yeah, yeah. thanks now get out okay. Lemmy's just like <laughs> yeah. so uh. I, <laughs> so by the way great moment in Metal Year since I brought it up earlier Lemmy what do you think about all the pretty rock and rollers out there good luck to them if they're pretty I wish I was <laughs> yeah. that was a great line so yeah. what would you want to play off this do Angel City. All right. So we're going to play Angel City from my original Greek import pressing of 1916. But before we get to that, let's talk about the final album in this list of the Vinylversary Edition, Volume 5. And it's an album that celebrated its 40-year anniversary very recently. And it was originally released on February 2nd, 1981. And we are talking about the second album from Iron Maiden, Killers. The first record to be produced by the legendary late Martin Birch. Yeah. So this is the 180 gram reissue that was released on October 13th, 2014. And as far as the quick stats on this record, it peaked at number 78 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart and number 12 on the UK Albums chart. And both in the U.S. and in the U.K., certified gold. And for me personally, Iron Maiden's Killers 
is the first Iron Maiden album that I heard in its entirety when I borrowed a friend's cassette copy, probably sometime in 89. So this album was definitely very pivotal for me in becoming more of an Iron Maiden fan as opposed to somebody who was only familiar with the number of the beast and songs like Can I Play With Madness and Wasted Years and Aces High. But it was this record really, and which is interesting because it's with Paul Diano instead of Bruce Dickinson, that this was really sort of my entry point to want to listen to everything from Maiden from 89 and back. So that's my perspective on Iron Maiden's Killers. So I'm interested to hear your take on Iron Maiden's Killers and what track would you want to play? Uh, this is a great record, of course. Uh, I was lucky enough to come across a picture disc remaster of it from a few years ago. Nice. So there, there's nice. my thing right there. So I, uh, yeah, hang on. Let me get the... Same thing on the back. That's what I thought. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've never looked it up because I don't want to sell it. It just looks too nice. And I'm, I like that it says, I like that it says up the hammers on it because we always say up the irons now, but on the back it says up the hammers. Uh, and Martin Headmaster Birch produced, engineered, and bullied by Martin <laughs> Headmaster Birch. Uh, man, goodness. <sighs> you know what? I, I'm tempted to say Wrathchild because that's in my top five Maiden songs ever. Mm-hmm. And Murders in the Room Morgue is great too. Love that. You song. know what? Let Let's go with the Let's go with the freaking uh, title track. Let's go with Killers. Okay, I'm with that. Solely for the fact that when I borrowed my friend's cassette back then, Killers was immediately the first song to make it to the current mixtape that I was making at the time. So, I'm with that plan. Nice. I just want to say before we, we play the tracks and get to the close of the show that songs like The Twilight Zone, I think that's like a really underrated, overlooked Iron Maiden song. And, and lastly, I want to say, for all that's made about Paul Diano and, you know, his vocals and his look leaning towards punk, he had some ridiculous notes on this record. Yeah. Right? That's kind of I, why I wanted to play Killers, because that's, you know... That's that's kind of, you know, one of his showpieces, you know, so. Okay. So on yeah. that note, let's play the last two tracks of this episode. We're going to play Angel City from the original Greek import press of Motorhead's 1916, followed by the title track from the 180-gram black vinyl edition released on October 13th, 2014 of Iron Maiden's Killers and the title track, Killers. I wanna be a star and play a 
Angel City from Motorhead's 1916, taken from the original Greek vinyl pressing, followed by the title track from Iron Maiden's Killers, taken from the 180-gram black vinyl press from 2014, as we are at the end of the show, as we've reached that point where it's time to give some love to our other podcasts here at cnjradio.com. So, Joey... Take it away. All right. So, yes, please. If you enjoyed this or you just enjoy anything, I call it anything rock culture, go to cnjradio.com. You can, of course, hear I Am Vinyl and every episode of that. Catch up on that if you haven't heard them all yet. Uh, great podcast here by Pete. Pete does a great job. Our flagship show is the Wrestling House Show. That's the one we started way back in the day. We're still doing it. It's a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. My show, Rock Strikes 10. Uh, the one that I do by myself. Uh, it's a list show. It's always different. It's always fun. Check it out. Look at this. Uh, we do not have a cat sitting show on cnjradio.com <laughs> because we don't know how to do that. We're terrible at it, so we would never uh, advise anybody on how to do that. But we also, on cnjradio.com, have the Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions featuring Randy Brown, a true alternative. And also, Talking Rock with myself and Mark Striegel, the great Mark Striegel of Talking Metal. Uh, that's a fun show as well. And last but not least, The Last Theater starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. Go check all those shows out. CNJRadio.com. All right. I couldn't have said it any better. I thank everybody for tuning in for not only this episode, but for any episode that you've tuned into. If you're a follower, and a supporter of this podcast. And we will see you next time right here on cnjradio.com.